Welcome to the midweek edition of Legal AF with your co-hosts, Michael Popak and Karen Friedman Agnifilo. And today on a special edition, we're joined by a very amazing guest, one that I've wanted to get on the show for a long time, Anthony Davis, who most people know as the host of the Five Minute News and the Weekend Show. He's a British broadcaster, journalist with more than 20 years of experience, a radio broadcaster for the BBC in the past. And in 2017, he relocated to the U.S., residing in Los Angeles, where he looked around and decided there was a lack of nonpartisan and world news coverage. And he decided to fill that gap with his partners. And they came up with Five Minute News, which is now on the Midas Media Network. I've been on the show and I've been chomping at the bit to get Anthony on our show, Karen, so that we can get a a, uh, a view to what's happening on Jan 6 and the Jan 6 hearings from somebody who didn't grow up here, who learned about our system in different ways than you and I did and has that unique perspective to bring to this. So, Anthony, welcome to Legal AF. Thank you, Michael. Yeah, it, it's I do think perspective is is important. And I, I also think that relocating is important. And I, I feel like if we get the chance in our lives to to travel, then that's one thing. But to actually stop for, you know, more than six months, it took me about six months to kind of acclimatize to, to living in the US. And and I, I really recommend it. You know, if you've got the opportunity, just go somewhere else. And, and were you right from the get go, were you focused on our political our political system, our political scheme as part of your world news coverage? Yeah, because when I, I was on the radio for years in, in London and, um, you know, when you start out on the radio, they put you on at night. So I used to like go on at midnight and I would be on talking, just doing a talk show for till like five o'clock in the morning. And invariably, because of the time difference, I would get to cover U.S. news. So whenever there was a State of the Union address or any of these mm. kind of major events, I, I would get to cover it. And and so consequently, you know, I started out really taking a, a great interest in the U.S. And, and you know, I have family here and I, I even have a, a distant relative who I never met who was killed in 9-11 in one of the towers mm. whose name appears on the memorial. And so I do feel a, a great connection with the U.S. And I've always felt I, I used to be told off for like talking to strangers in shops and to people working in stores in London. They're like, why do you do that? Because no one talks to anybody in London, you know. And then yeah. when I came here, it's like, ah, oh, I've always been American. You know? so <laughs> I've always had that ability to kind of yeah. chat to strangers. So I feel, you know, I, I feel like I'm in the right place finally. Yeah, you feel like you're home. And we feel like yeah. you're home. So let's, we we are now at, and Karen and I did some, some coverage this morning for Midas Media Network of the uh, seventh session, the seventh day of the Jan 6 hearings. And I mean, I, I thought Cassidy Hutchinson was uh, blow the dome off of the Capitol testimony. But today was just, uh, it was like um, a cornucopia of amazing facts that this committee has developed. And the way they're doing it is so important to the continuation of our democracy and to the reinstallation of the guardrails around our democracy and was severely pressure tested by, by Donald Trump. And people, some people are saying, and some of the trolls that all of us get on, on Twitter are saying, who cares? You know, you're trying to distract from Biden and his presidency. 
No, we're not. We're, we're talking about a historic, epic um, conspiracy and seditious conspiracy led for the first time in U.S. history by the U.S. president to retain power. And of course, Congress and the special committee has a role in bringing that to light, just like the Watergate committee did and all the other committees have in the past. What happens from here, I want to talk about as well in terms of has the weather changed because of the Cassidy Hutchinson, because of the, the seven sessions, as to the likelihood of the prosecution of Donald Trump. At the beginning, I thought it was going to be for the crimes outlined by, uh, by Liz Cheney, the seven steps of the conspiracy. The more I listen and the more I, I um, understand, I think that the, the clearest path to a successful prosecution against Donald Trump Maybe what happened on the ellipse in the days prior to it, starting on the, the tweet on December the 19th, and knowing that there was an armed insurrection in front of him and uh, actually creating it and then sending it off um, to do whatever they were going to do with members of uh, members of Congress. So let me let me start with with Anthony. What, what has been your takeaway from both the, the theater of it and the substance of it? with seven sessions under our belt with the Jan 6 committee. Well, my first feeling is, how did it come to this? Like, why, why do we need to get to a point where there would need to be public hearings or any hearing or any investigation? Because the system should have prevented all of this with the first impeachment, right? When he did the perfect phone call with Zelensky, and he got, you know, he got impeached by Congress, and then it goes to the Senate, of course, they, they let him go because... Uh, they, he, he's the supreme leader. That's the point at which this entire party should have ended. And, and we should never have got to a point where this um, kind of partisan nature of American politics, it's like we are prepared to literally sell anything, sell our souls, sell our grandmothers, just to kind of maintain power. And it's a tragedy because, you know, democracy is, is it's fragile. And I, I just don't think America needed to, until this point, consider that its democracy could actually be taken away by a solitary individual. I mean, this is the thing. It really is down to one man. And if Donald Trump was a different kind of person, if he had a moral compass or a conscience, if he wasn't mentally ill, and I, and I need to be careful about saying how mentally ill he is, because I don't want them to use that in his defense. You know what I mean? Because <laughs> oh, he won't. Well, don't worry. Right. He, he won't. But but. Plenty of plenty of clinicians have have diagnosed him from afar, and that is that he is the last person on the planet that should ever have been the president. And so that's why we've got this whole thing now. And and it's and it's rubbing off in other countries as well. You know, his tenure and his behavior mm -hmm. and, and, and the laws that have been even abortion. You know, this has all come about because of Donald Trump being this empty vessel where all these other um, uh, lawmakers have been able to manipulate him to do what it is that they want, whether it be the Federalist Society, you know, coming in and 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 choosing individuals for the for for the Supreme Court. You know, there's all these theories about what's really gone on behind this, and and I yeah. so I I see Trump as being the pinnacle, you know, or the nucleus of this disaster, but I also recognize that it takes an army of others to kind of facilitate all of this damage. And so the first impeachment is when he should have gone. The second impeachment, of course, was for the insurrection. 
and they let him off on that one. So mm -hmm. that's how I feel from a, from a distance. It's like, where is the moral compass of the people who are elected representatives of, of the voters well, and the citizens of this country? Well, look at your home country. Two cabinet members resign and it brings down the entire government. And there goes Boris Johnson. And, yeah. and by, by contrast, as you've, as you've so eloquently outlined, look what it came to. And we still have a large percentage of Americans that think Trump that think Trump did nothing wrong, but properly in a First Amendment way advocate his position. I mean, they've completely tuned this out. I want to talk about what do we think the ultimate impact? There's a there's a historical audience. There's a real time voter audience. There's a DOJ audience. There's many, many reasons and accountability. You just have to do this as a civilized democracy. You have to put your leaders on trial when they do bad, bad things. Kara, what do you think? You had an opinion in the very, very beginning, because you and I have been doing this for a while, about the show around the presentation and that, you know, would they at the end in the way they they elected to take advantage of the fact that the Republicans uh, took what I refer to as took the practice ball home uh, and went home. It took the practice ball, and went home uh, and they thought, well, maybe that would scuttle the hearings. Instead, all it did was give them a free pass to present not the way Watergate was presented, not gavel to gavel with all live testimony and and uh, a Q&A back and forth, but in a presentation of evidence in a way that you and I and other lawyers would make an opening or a closing argument from the very beginning. How effective do you think that's been? And for you, what has been the most powerful moments in the seven sessions? Yeah, so, you know, I had my doubts uh, in the beginning because this was scripted and it felt very produced. And so I was concerned it would lack a little bit of authenticity. And I have to say, I, I, each one is better than the next. I think they are really doing a painstaking, methodical, excellent job at going through detail by detail and presenting it in a way that people can understand. And, and you know, there's many ways you could slice and dice this. You know, you could go in chronological order. You could, you know, take a day by day. But instead, they're doing it slightly differently. You know, they're focusing on, you know, things that kind of, makes sense to go together, you know, like Trump's pressuring the states was one day or tr Trump's pressuring DOJ was another day or pressuring Pence, you know, they're, they're grouping things in ways that I think is, has been extremely effective. And, you know, look, they've, they've spoken to what, over a thousand people. And so to be able to take all that testimony, you know, one of the things I love is when they show the videos and they show these like, you know, 26 year old staffers just asking questions of witnesses, you know, I mean, they're, they're really doing a phenomenal job of, of learning the facts, taking, uh, getting the information and then digesting it and presenting it in a way that tells a story. And so I do think they're doing a really effective job at telling a story that feels authentic. And it also feels really important uh, from just a history, you know, kind of historical standpoint. You know, we all sort of watched TV on January 6th and we all kind of knew um, what happened, but but I don't think anyone appreciated just the coordinated effort of um, all, all the different things that go together that they've been presenting. Um, my concerns are a couple. I have a couple concerns. Number one, I, I don't know how many people are actually really watching it. Um, 
you know, it's, it's a huge time investment to watch it at the, at the, you know, there's these many hours and it's in the middle of the day. Right. And so, and, and there's been seven hearings. And so it's been over 20 plus hours of, of these summary, you know, they're, they're sort of these summary hearings. So I worry a little bit that it's the, the choir, you know, they're preaching to the choir a little bit. And we know, we know what, we know one person is watching. Well, exactly. We do. Donald Trump is watching. Exactly. Because they're clearly getting under his skin. Um, And and my hope is that the DOJ is watching because I think really what they're they're doing is they're creating a, a roadmap of, you know, of for for the investigators for the Department of Justice. I mean, this is a massive case. You know, when you think about it, they've they've interviewed over a thousand people themselves. And so for that, that could take years and years and years and years for any prosecution, you know, to to go through that kind of level of investigation. And and it's not like they're not busy bringing their 800 cases, you know, of seditious conspiracy and all the other things that they're bringing as well. So, you know, they're quite busy already on this. So this is kind of a beautiful roadmap that they've presented to the prosecution to say, these are the people you need to speak with. This is the evidence you need to get. This is the here, the non hearsay evidence you're going to want to you're going to want to get. And these, this is the evidence that supports these charges. And so I think that is my biggest takeaway is um, that they're really that they're really going to um kind of do that work for for the Justice Department. You know, but I was a little bit I was disappointed to hear, for example, that the Justice Department hasn't interviewed most of these witnesses, you know, and it makes me a little frustrated. Like, what are they doing? You know, I I hope that I hope they're going to continue. I hope they're going to start really moving forward and moving forward quickly here, because I I think the evidence is there. I mean, sure, it has to stand up on cross-examination and sure, it has to be non-hearsay. It has to be admissible. It has to be relevant, all those things. But I think I think um, they've done an excellent job at uh, at really kind of showing the, these are the these are the places you're going to these are the threads you're going to want to pull. And this is this is where you're going to want to look. And I, and I think they're going to, you know, look, there's never going to be a perfect case. You know, there's never going to be 100 percent proof, direct evidence that, you know, you're not going to find an email where Donald Trump wrote to Mark Meadows or somebody else saying, I know that I lost this election but let's just say it this way anyway. You know, it's never going to be the case. They're not going to have the direct evidence. So, you, but, you know, prosecutors do this all the time. And there's no reason just because he's the president, former president of the United States, that they have to be afraid to bring a tough case. Because I think you've got all the elements here. And that's the thing that I think these hearings have done an excellent job at showing. What, what was, before I turn to Anthony, what was the most, if you can put your finger on one, what has been the most powerful person or bit of evidence that, that you've heard so far in the seven hearings? I thought I thought uh, that's a great question. Um, I, I, I don't have a particular moment or a particular piece. I thought Cassidy Hutch- Hutchinson was, you know, that that turned a corner, I think. Um, yeah. Uh, but I also think the fact that they're putting all these Republicans that almost every person who testifies, if not everybody, is a Republican. I think it's just really um, I think I think that's a really effective that that in and of itself has been effective. I think um, I really love the questioning that's been happening. You know, I was a little worried at first because they, they don't just ask questions 
they kind of give testimony too, in a way, right? They they give speeches. The the you know the the various whether it's Liz Cheney or whoever, um, you know they they give a lot of speeches. And at first, I was like, you know, that I didn't I didn't know how effective that would be. And I I found I find those summary speeches quite effective. Mm-hmm. Um, I I don't know. To me, for whatever reason, Liz Cheney is the person that comes to mind as the person who I think has really. Um, coming out as the most effective uh, person in this. I know a lot of people love Jamie Raskin. I mean, there's different people who like different people. And I know these aren't even the witnesses, but, you know, to me, just her perspective in all of this and the things she's doing. And, you know, she makes sure that that, you know, like even today, she made sure that we all know that Donald Trump is intimidating a witness, a witness that you haven't heard from. And we referred this to the DOJ because we will go to any lengths that to protect these hearings. And there's just, she's just something about her that I just have to say, she is really impressing me in these hearings. She is just, she is making sure that, um, you know, she's just, she's, there's just, she, there's no bullshit with her on these hearings. And so there's something about that, that I find um, really powerful. Yeah. Um, let, let me, let me turn to Anthony. So Anthony, you've, you've seen it either has seen it in real time or, or the summaries. I've been watching it in real time. I, I choose, I've been choosing to watch the Fox News coverage. Yeah, good. And the reason for that is for obvious reasons. I want to see how they're dissecting it and translating it. Uh, they have a uh, a lawyer on Jonathan Turley. Uh, mm-hmm. I watched him, and uh, he's running out of he, he's running out of excuses for for these. He, he taught me. He taught me con law. For right. my for my bar review course. Yeah. Well, he's obviously a, a, a partisan guy. He's the yeah. chair of public interest law at uh, George Washington University. And I think that, you know, they get these people on who have these titles or they have these positions and it gives them credence. But at the end of the day, they're just Republican hacks. Right. And so they he's are, always been. Yeah, he's right. always and been. They're using language that's is legal speak that will confuse the viewers in a way to make it sound like the uh, the the hearing doesn't really have a have a case. But they're they're kind of it's become indefensible now, and that's really what I thought was most interesting about this week's testimony. And you know, I really feel like the chronology of this is really important. And Midas put a video out a few months ago called A a Coup in Plain Sight. It was a five-minute edited video, uh, which was one of the best videos I think Midas have made because it basically told us the story, you know, with a voiceover of what was going on on the evening of the 5th and the morning of the 6th. And we could have not had the hearing and they could have just used the Midas Touch video (laughs) as, as evidence because... What it because it was certainly more digestible, it's five minutes, and and you know, sometimes that's all people have time for. But what it did was it, it told the story in, in this in this kind of chronological way, and I think that's the best thing about this hearing. In terms of star witnesses, I also was drawn to Cassidy Hutchinson in so many ways. Um, but I also am fascinated in the way that Donald Trump has a kind of try to brush off, you know, I don't know her. I don't even know who she was. She's nothing to do with me. I never met this woman. Then she's unstable. She's, un- she's unstable. Well, that I love, she's unstable yeah. based on her handwriting. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then there's have that you photo. Ever seen of- his sign- have you seen his signature, by the way, speaking no, of handwriting? Like a, that's a whole, that's a whole story. It looks like a, yeah, he looks like a there, serial killer. There's yeah, a, before, yeah. before Anthony gives it, I want to hear his, his complete thought. There's a line that I heard from a Republican that fits in well with what Anthony said at the top of the show. <laughs> this Republican who went, he didn't want to be named. <laughs> 
said, I'm not saying that Trump um, should be committed to a mental hospital. I'm just saying if he was in a mental hospital, he wouldn't be able to get out. Right. I mean, but this is what we're dealing with. And and the more that they present, the more evidence that they present, it's clear that all of our worst fears about who this guy was are, are true and that he really he's a he's a very miserable man he mm-hmm. he's a he's a disgusting human being who is a very mis- miserable person who who is you know he's only ever sued people if he doesn't like them you know he doesn't he doesn't he can't communicate he just kind of throws lawyers at it and this is really the first time in his life that he's having to be accountable and these um messages he's been putting out on truth social which I've seen because people repost them on Twitter, which they probably shouldn't do, <laughs> it, are, are proof that he is now running scared and, mm-hmm. and he is genuinely terrified. But I'm also interested in, in how he doesn't realize that the game is up. He's still peddling the game, the grift. And, and that's really the, the big issue here is that even if you did get him on the stand and you asked him all these questions, he'd be like, uh and, mm-hmm. and it's like, oh, man, I mean, he is going to be the last man standing. And I I just worry that nothing will come of this. I honestly believe that. That's, that's Well, let, well let's talk story. about. Yeah, and I agree with you. Let's talk about the multiple audiences for this one. I think we all agree, at least on this podcast, <laughs> the Midas Media, you have to do this. Any civilized democracy, you know, constitutional republic has to hold its people accountable and and the Jan 6 committee is doing just that. And will history will look fondly back on the work that's been done by this committee and by the witnesses and even the Republicans who, although although at the time, joked about being on team crazy or team normal rather than invoking the 25th Amendment, walking away and not enabling him, at least now, even if it's Pat Cipollone three days ago, even now are coming forward, maybe not courageously, but they are coming forward. I like Eric Hirschman a lot. I think he, his... New York, uh, Brooklynese style of speaking about what he said to people like John Eastman, to J- to Jeffrey Clark, to Sidney Powell, has been for me has been one of my favorite. Whenever I hear Eric Hirschman's about to give some video clip, I'm I'm on the edge of my seat because he just tells it like it is. He he basically said, "You're all." fucking crazy. And um, I, I don't want my favorite line for him was when he said to John Eastman, I don't want to hear anything out of your mouth except the words peaceful transition. Repeat it after me. Peaceful. And he made him say it. And the guy actually the guy actually said it. And he was in the room sort of like, uh, you know, Zelig. He and Chip alone, Chip alone, were in the room for many of these things, you know, the night before the come to D.C. It's going to be wild tweet goes out the, that crazy meeting that the craziest meeting in the entire Trump presidency that Jimmy Raskin talked about. You know, they're there. Um, you know, Meadows is there for most of it. Cassidy Hutchinson is present for most of this. Cipollone was present for most of the major events that matter that we keep talking about. And so his testimony was powerful. But today, to be able to get Proud Boys and Oath Keepers to turn, even when some of them are risking jeopardy because they're still being prosecuted or haven't been sentenced yet. And they came in and said, we got had, we were had by Trump. To your point about what, is anything going to come of this? Okay. People who are watching or not watching, who are going to vote or not vote for Republicans or Trump have already made up their mind. 
if you're a thinking adult, you have to be persuaded by the evidence because it's just, as you said, there's, it's just, it's just inexorable. The, the, the amount of evidence here, it, you just can't explain it away. I was heartened, you know, polling, you always have to take with a grain of salt. I was heartened by a couple of things. The New York Times at least is reporting, or there was a poll that was done, I think a mammoth poll just recently that said basically Trump has lost the under 35 vote for the Republicans. 65% of those under 35 do not want to see him run again. They may not have a position they want to take on Jan 6th, but they don't want to see him run again. And that is a tremendous number to have walked away from, from Trump as, he, as, he's, as you're saying, he's trying to be the last man standing and they're all leaving the party, leaving him alone. The second thing is Lisa Monaco. I mean, people, you know, sources close to the Department of Justice have said that Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony has opened a lot of eyes at the Department of Justice. I can't believe it took this long um, for them to see clearly a crime that may be easy to, easier to prosecute than any of this other conspiracy and spoke and wheel and hub. And, and you know, Trump always finds a way just to be outside of the communication related to it. Um, as much as we're piecing this together. Because he's uh, clever. It, you know, he's, he's a very clever. criminal, right? So he, right. he knows how not to leave a paper trail, whether it's tearing them up or putting down the toilet eating or them. eating them. You know, the guy <laughs> knows how to avoid yeah. leaving evidence. So so you're left with what, the, what I think Karen was commenting on. You're left with the Jan 6 committee getting to the water's edge, connecting, you know, you, you know Bannon, Flynn, Stone, Giuliani, Powell, uh, uh, Eastman, Clark, usually through Meadows on all of these things, if not through Bannon, through Stone, through those, and Giuliani we've talked about. So you have all that. But what you don't have is the thing that Karen said is you don't have the text or the tweet that says, you know, at the Willard Hotel, all right, go send the armed armed masses to go. I think that might come, though. You know, I actually think that, I, you know, they talk about evidence that they haven't yet presented. If this is as well produced as it is, and mm-hmm. it really is well produced. You you save the money shot for the end, right? And, episode and seven, eight, episode, episode eight, episode seven before right. the prequels. And I, I and so I honestly feel like there is going to be a moment at which it's like, wow. I mean, look, when he did the the phone call with Zelensky, uh, sorry, with Brad Raffensperger, and mm-hmm. said, "I just need you to find me one more vote." I mean, that again is proof that the guy was trying to rig the election. Why well, why not that phone call? It's on tape. Well, Let's have Karen talk about that. So we've got uh, parallel to this in real life. Um, we've got Fawny Willis's, and it's really heating up, special grand jury in Fulton County, Atlanta, Georgia. We now have a sitting senator, former chairman of the Judiciary Committee, who has to go into a grand jury and give a criminal grand jury and give testimony or take the Fifth Amendment. What do you think about that, Karen? And where do you think, where do you think, uh, Fawny ends up or where the special grand jury ends up and they're recommending an indictment. Yeah. So, you know, the, obviously this would be best prosecuted federally as one package, including the Georgia one. However, the president can pardon a federal conviction. So if he gets convicted federally, if you get another Republican president, he could always get pardoned. So there is uh, something beautiful about getting a state prosecution as well. And that to me is the clearest, most simple, you know, you've got the call on tape. So, you know, it's really just um, 
pretty clear kind of what he did and what he was trying to do. But you need to show his intent because, you know, a lot of these crimes and everyone kind of talks about the various, you know, you have to show that he knew that it was false or that he knew it was a lie. And and that's why they're sort of taking all this um, all this time to show that he did know. And, you know, even the Georgia case, you know, if he, let's say he really did think that there were some missing votes. And so he was saying, find the votes that are legitimate. You know, that's why they still have to prove that he knew that it was false and that he was trying to interfere and that he had a corrupt mind, you know, that he had a <clears throat> nefarious purpose for his for his intent. He threatened but, him, didn't he? He, he? he also threatened him. He said it was like, no, yeah, no, one, exactly. no one's going to like you if you don't. Yeah. So I, I think there's enough to bring the case. I mean, the thing that really made me sad today was, you know, the, these poor guys who, you know, one of them, Mr. Ayers, I think was his name, was, you know, he's being prosecuted. He, he, he was like, you know, he's not an oath keeper or any of these other things. He just hears his president that he follows who says, come on January 6th. He find, gets a ride the next day he goes and then he's listening and he says, come to the Capitol. You know, his president tells him to go to the Capitol. So he goes to the Capitol and he's convicted. He's being prosecuted. And that and I'm like, to me, that was sort of outrageous that, you know, the real guy who's who's doing this, I don't understand why he's why everyone's walking away from him. You know what? And and so I think Fonnie Willis has a great case that she can bring. Is it perfect? No. But as I said, there is no perfect case, you know, and prosecutors do that all the time. You know, they, they bring cases that aren't perfect. And but it's a pretty great case. And there's a lot of really good evidence. I think Fonnie has less baggage in making her prosecutor discretion decision than Merrick Garland has. Merrick Garland, a appointed by a Democratic president, has the weight of history on his shoulders about being the first attorney general to prosecute a former president for a crime. And, and that will go down in the annals of history. It should. I don't want to set up the punchline by anybody taking away from my question. I don't, I don't think he should. He should. He should. But it is a different set. It's a different matrix that he has to go through. And uh, not that Biden's involved with that decision, but they, that that Garland has to go through in his and his cabinet. Funny Willis, she's a free agent. She's she's in a state where a crime probably was elect an election crime was probably committed not just by Trump, but by a combination of Trump, Meadows, Lindsey Graham and um and others who were all involved in the in that pressuring. I mean, Raffensperger and his CEO, who testified powerfully in front of this committee three or four sessions ago, I think that you know the takeaway on that was was tremendous. So go Fawny, because I I think um, as you said, it's going to take Garland a long time in his DOJ to reproduce and replicate the evidence that's been now. Let me clear up something. Let me ask you, Karen, something and, and Anthony, too. I don't think they have to re-interview these people. If they have, if these files are turned over to them, you know what these witnesses are going to say. You may have asked another question or you might have gone down another line of inquiry, but you've got hours upon hours for every one of these thousand people that's going to be delivered to you with a ribbon by the Jan 6 committee when this is all done. Why can't they just, yeah, maybe there's a couple more they'd like to talk to, but why can't they just take that and move forward with their decision to indict? I mean, there's, you know, the, you would never do that. Um, 
you want to interview witnesses yourself. You want to test them yourself. You want to test their credibility yourself. You want to cross-examine them. And, you know, also it's a, you, you, you got to make, prove a case beyond a reasonable doubt. And so um, every prosecutor, they, I mean, maybe they don't have to interview all thousand people because there are people who are not relevant, but the, certainly the people who they've determined are the, are the, pieces of the puzzle towards prosecution, they'll use this testimony to sort of decide and create that roadmap and decide who to talk to and, and what and how to approach them. And whether it's through subpoena or um, some other way, you know, per perhaps you, you compel testimony and you immunize certain people. And so they'll use the information that was gleaned from, from these interviews to make those decisions, but they're going to want to interview uh, pr pretty, they're, they're going to want to interview and, and test the witnesses themselves um, when they do this investigation and, you know, see if it holds up and, you know, that, that this is actually direct evidence that's admissible. You know, just one thing I wanted to mention and, and get your, your thoughts on was, you know, in the beginning, in the first few hearings, the, the charges that people were mostly talking about were these conspiracy to defraud the United States and obstruction of an official proceeding. And that's where you had to prove this sort of he knew and his intent. But the more that we get into his um, the, the, the later hearings, the more I think that seditious conspiracy and incitement to insurrection is on the table. And there, even if he thought he won, even if he thought the election was, you know, somehow he won. You can't point an angry mob locked and loaded that you summon, that you know are armed, that you know are violent, that they're chanting Mike Pence, you know, hang Mike Pence, and you're saying he deserves it. You know, you can't, that, that's like pointing a weapon and, and shooting that weapon at the Capitol. You, you're not allowed well, to we do that. We always thought that. You've used that phrase before. Now we yeah, have the I've, actual, yeah. now we have the actual evidence that he yep. was told that they were armed and dangerous, did nothing yep. to disarm them. In fact, wanted them armed and dangerous in attending the rally. And knowing that, which is how you've described it, pointed it in the direction. That's a crime. I agree with you. That's that is where I think Lisa Monaco and the Department of Justice, based on Cassidy Hutchinson, is now focused, at least based on the reporting that's out there. You know, the funny thing is, you know what they might do, depending on what the evidence is from today they could just get them on witness intimidation. Like they might just pick an easy, small I was thing. That to... That's what they would end up doing. Well, because it's, let me hear that. Let me hear from Anthony on with, that. Isn't that what happened with Nixon? You know, fundamentally, it's like, you yep. know, you, you, you don't go for the crime itself. It's, it's mm -hmm. trying to cover up the crime. And I feel like, that's right. I mean, all of this, just hearing you as lawyers go, you know, well, you know, is that a crime? And how do they prove that's a crime? It's like, are you kidding me? Like, this is like <laughs> a gazillion crimes here. And, You're right. And, Maybe it would be easier to prove what's not a crime. And I, I kind of I kind of feel like we've this is maybe my perspective coming from Europe where, you know, we have this European Court of Human Rights and it's all about it's all about, you know, doing what's doing the right thing. You know, doing the right thing is like baked into our unwritten constitution. You know, a lot of people don't understand how Britain has a constitution, but it's unwritten. And people are like, well, how, how do you how do you make that work? It's like it just does. And it's because our country is so old and it's it has evolved. And, you know, as a country evolves, its laws and it, it, a feeling about living in that country and how you behave is baked into the very fabric of, of the culture. And America is a very young country and, and it doesn't have that. So it relies on case law and it relies on these kind of you know, these moments to kind of rewrite history, I guess. And. 
And so I understand why the committee is doing this. They want to bake this into the history books, right? They want to put this on record. But for me, it, as, as a, someone with a moral compass, it doesn't, I just cannot see how we're having to do all of this stuff and bring in all of these witnesses and make all these people have to regurgitate. I mean, Michael Fallon, I think his name was, who's the, the hipster policeman. I think he gave the most incredible testimony. He was like on the first edition because, you know, he voted for Donald Trump. He was a guy who, you know, he looked like a Trump supporter. You know, he had his beard and his tattoos and he was like ready for Trump. And then he sees the light once he realizes what's going on. And then he gets tasered with his own weapon and, and, and ends up suffering major injuries and trauma and, and gives the most compelling testimony. These are the people, you know, for me, that's where it could have stopped. I didn't need to hear, hear from White House insiders. Just hearing from him was enough for me. And I think I've said this before, but it's like, to me, there are two crimes here. There is the, there is the distraction, which is the riot. That was distracting from what was going on with the state legislators and with, you know, getting Mike Pence to kind of do his bit, which he didn't do. And he's hailed as a hero when all he did was his job, you know. And, and so I feel like mixing both of them in, because I don't think most people know what an insurrection really is. It's not a word that you would use in the kind of common vernacular. And, and, and consequently, I see the insurrection as that kind of overturning of the election, which was Trump and it was Bannon and it was all of those people involved, the guy who ran overstock, you know, like this, all this kind of, you know, Michael <laughs> Flynn. <laughs> overstock guy overstock guy but then you've got this misdirection you've got this riot you know like let's it's it's cla it's classic criminality create a distraction over here while we do the serious business over here yeah. and so i see it as two very different things and i, I feel like throwing it all into one kind of uh, as karen was saying it's like you're blaming these rioters who are just doing what they're told for the bigger business, which is the fact that Trump's trying to overturn uh, the election. I, I see it a little bit differently, but not not much. I think we'll, we'll end up in the same place. Yeah, I, I, I am buying in. And I think Liz Cheney did a good job in the very first session and giving the architecture for how they were going to present. I do see the increasing if you were to map this chart, this the increasing frustration of Trump in trying all of these strategies and none of them working. You know, let's try the lawsuits and you go, oh, and 63. Let's try, you know, surrounded by these crazy lawyers who no one's yeah. ever heard of. And most of them are now disbarred or soon to be disbarred. That doesn't work. Let's pressure the state electors and the legislators there. We've got some we've got some people that like us in there. Let's get let's make presentations there through the same people, through Giuliani, through Powell, Lynn Wood. We don't talk about him anymore. And, and that fails because, you know, they have a backbone and they have a moral compass, as you like to say, Anthony, that doesn't work. And then uh, let's pressure uh, the Department of Justice and let's, you know, in the last hours and gasp of the presidency, let's replace the acting attorney general with the guy five down five floors below who's an environmental, the environmental guy, yeah, the environmental guy who Pat Cipollone <laughs> said, said, what are you? What do you do? Yeah. Go back to doing that, not this. <laughs> and then they were going to make they were going to make crazy Sidney Powell some special right. special counsel. With, yeah, whatever. I mean, and, and so all this is failing, and and where he's running out of time. Eventually, he's going to be the ex president, 
and, and he's clinging to that power. And the last thing between December the 18th, the Willard Hotel battle stations with the two groups of crazies there, you know, Stone and, and Flynn uh, in General Giuliani Flynn in one room well. and Giuliani and Bannon and, and the others in the other room with Meadows sort of at the top as the point guard coordinating all those things. That's not working. And so he wants to use this is it, man. It is now, you know, um, just flame throwing, carpet bobbing the Capitol in a last ditch, literally last ditch effort to use pitchforks and torches to overturn the democracy. So I didn't see it as two different events. I just saw it as the desperation, the desperate act of a man whose power by dint of the clock was going to expire any moment. And this was the last thing. Bomb, bonfire. <laughs> Boom. And well, it was him finding out that Pence wasn't going to play his game. Abs absolutely. And so that's when he rewrote the speech to kind of incite this violence because it was up, as you say, it was like the 11th hour. And, you know, he didn't care for these people. He didn't care that they were armed. He, he didn't care that they were going to, people were going to die. I, I got bad news for these people. And then I want to talk about the 187 minutes that Karen's talked about in prior podcasts, because I think that Lord knows what was going on for those 187 minutes. But but I have enough elbow interaction with Trump, having grown up in this area in New York, having known about the Trump organization from the very beginning. He's probably the only person in America that lost money running a, a casino. Um, and, and his families, he would not allow, I hate to burst their bubble, the people that are his supporters, he wouldn't have allowed to shine his shoes or open his limousine door at any point in his career. He's a silver spoon kid who's been living off of daddy's money. He took daddy's hundred million dollars and made it into 50 million dollars. And then and then which is hard to do. And then inflated his own ego and his licensing and all of that. He's never built a darn thing except for one that he built with daddy's money and, and connections. The Hyatt in, in New York. Everything he else is the was, elite, isn't he? He is the elite he, that he, he claimed in his campaign. He, he was he a middling. He was a, he was middling a wannabe real, elite. He was a middling real estate developer of no real account that would you would not put in the top. You know, every year there's a huge real estate conference, Remby in New York. He, he, he could barely be in that room because he wasn't really a developer. If it wasn't for The Apprentice keeping him as a some sort of pseudo celebrity, the way the Kardashians are, the way the Hilton sisters are. He wouldn't he, he wouldn't even have been president of the United States. So these people that have trans transformed their blue collar, you know, right wing, uh, primarily not college educated because that's his largest supporter, 50 year old white guy. He would never have let that person within 10 feet of him at any other point in his career, except when he ran for president. I think we're going to find more out about that, because I think eventually when if he ever did take the stand, I mean, I want to see him in Guantanamo Bay. But I mean, you know, if, <laughs> if he ever did take the stand and he was asked questions about his base and his supporters, I think he might accidentally start insulting them. And because often that's what these people do. You know, they just like it all spews out. And he will literally throw anybody to the lions and all of these people that have been because this is just a fundraising thing, isn't it? This whole oh, yeah. movement is to yeah. make money. He's making money now. He's selling merchandise. Kimberly's now selling stuff online. She's got this new 
alternative to Zoom that she's set up, you know, that, that the family are now, they've come up with, it's called like Meet With Me or something. And I'm like, they are just gouging the, these poor people that don't have but any so, money. I mean, I wouldn't mind, but these people that they're stealing from are not rich. He He's going to grift $100 million a year for the foreseeable future, uh, unless he's in, like you said, unless he's in Leavenworth or in uh, Guantanamo Bay. Karen, what were you going to say when we interrupted? No, no, I just that my my only concern is, you know, you is there's this whole it's not not it's not only an American problem, you know, this right wing white supremacy kind of nationalist movement that you see in Europe, you see in America, you know, there, there's there's a, there's an underlying issue that is still, even if you prosecute Trump, is still an issue that just, you know, has to be dealt with um, and addressed because, you know, it's it's scary. I mean, it's 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 amazing when you heard today uh, one of the gentlemen who testified saying that what got, caused him to leave was the fact that they were denying the Holocaust. And you know, that was even too much for him. And you just think back to how did the Holocaust happen, you know, and, and how did and, and where were like, how did anyone let that that happen? You know, and it's because there were so many people that were the fuel to the fire of the one person who, you know, who who did all the bad things. And, and that's sort of where we are or where we're headed with with, with Donald Trump. But, but Florida is going to teach both sides of the Holocaust. Well, yeah, but, you know, no, but speaking of Florida, you know, you, you prosecute Trump, you've got Ron DeSantis could be, you know, all I'm saying is, is this this partly what's scary about this hearing is not just Donald Trump. It's 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 a whole aspect of a certain type of um, belief system in America. That's a little scary, you know, that. Well, this is well, here. yeah, but 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 it's always unfortunately pre social media historically has always been there. 20% of America, I'm just using this as my own Popakian prediction, Popakian statistic, 20% of America has always had uh, off-kilter views. Um, it's just that they haven't been amplified and personified in a president like in Donald Trump. But the, we saw the but beginnings now they can, of But the, they control the Supreme Court too now. But Well, well right. But we saw the beginnings of this with the Tea even before the Tea Party movement. You go back to Lee Atwater and what they did because the Republican Party generally is a narrow based party and they can't win unless they make abortion, gay marriage, gays in the military, wedge issues front and center. They can't win otherwise. You know, but look, I, you know, I'm, I'm not you have to know your history. Your history is prologue. I've seen the videos of the American Nazi Party holding a, a rally in Madison Square Garden in the 1940s. You know, it, it's not that long ago, and there is a group out there, whether they're QAnon, whether they're John Birch, whether they're anything the Southern Poverty Unit uh, is following, is 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 there, and they all kind of coalesced behind this president, and the Republicans went along with it in this unholy alliance in order, as Anthony said, to get power in a naked fashion, and. Um, yeah, well, because they be don't have the votes, do they? And, and they never is, have the votes. If alone. you don't have the votes, because you know, if you poll America, America is quite a progressive country, right. full of progressive people, and you know, people don't want abortion banned, and and people don't, and 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 so when you've got this kind of minority rule, which is both in the Supreme Court, but also in the Republican Party, that is a recipe for 
the civil war that I've been talking about. And I, I can't imagine what the alternative is, because we look at this hearing as being something that is the right thing to do at the right time and the right people are in charge. But if you watch Fox News or Newsmax or any of these other networks and see how it's being portrayed, it, it's a bipartisan hearing. And yet even the, the left-leaning media is not reporting it as bipartisan when it yeah. is, because they're denying these two Republicans and calling them rhinos. But you can call them rhinos all they like, or you like, they're still Republicans. And so we are, I think we are in danger. The media supports this. You know, the media is a right-leaning, you know, conservative-leaning, even CNN and all of these networks. They are... They need the fight. It's all about money. It comes down to money. Yeah. And so they'll say anything to facilitate well, well, their business. Well, on your point, I was just talking to a, a, a friend of mine who is a, a moderate Republican um, about the all of a sudden, spontaneously in the last week is story after story, including in the mainstream media, about Biden being too old for the position. Yeah. It's not. It started with Fox and Newsmax and Tucker Carlson. Now it's the New York Times. Right. And now it's all the they've all been co-opted or be, or because, like you said, they're all about the ratings. They're all about if it bleeds, it leads. So let's take out Biden. It's either that or there's Democrats that are fearful that we're going to lose big time, not just the midterms, but beyond and want to see him be a Lyndon Johnson and not run for a second term. But there but is a it, price to this, isn't yeah, there? There is a cost right. to hate speech. And and saying even saying Biden's you know old and he's senile and all this stuff, there is a price. It affects people, and and I fear that you know we're seeing mass shootings and we'll see an increasing number of mass shootings because it's almost like these far right or even just just even right of center. You know they've still got weapons locked up at home. You know the the seven million AR fifteen style rifles in circulation. I fear, I really fear that all of this misinformation on all channels, and I, you know, I I hate watching CNN because it's too over dramatized for a European like me, where it's like, you know, the news should be just the facts, and it isn't. It's like this is going to happen, and we're all going to die, and I'm like, ah, <laughs> and I and so I, I genuinely think that America has become its own worst enemy, and I agree. It, and it's got this kind of American exceptionalism, which says, you know. Yes, we're mass shooting. And yes, our education is terrible. And, and yes, we've got no healthcare system, but we are the greatest country in the world. And, and that repeating this rhetoric of being the greatest country in the world does not serve us in any way. I mean, America is 15th in terms of economic stability out of the top 40 countries, right? It, it's 27th in global social mobility. It's 21st out of 40 countries in social inequality within the economic system. It's 45th in the world in terms of press freedom. It, it's like, I mean, I, I have numbers in my head. You know, it's 24th <laughs> in reading. It's 39th in math. It's 24th in science. I mean, America is really on its knees in so many ways. Maybe just... no, number number one in podcasts. Well, no, it's number one in incarcerations. <laughs> you know, I mean, well, it is yeah. it is number one in something. Yeah, and and that's the tragedy. So I think, like, in terms of re just stopping resetting, nothing is going to change because Karen's right. Everything goes back to racism. You know, the, it goes back to slave owners and landowners and the Wild West. And I, I just fear that the people that are watching this hearing who are on the right, whether they're on the far right or the, you know, they're 
they just see this as being like Democrat stuff in the same way they see climate change as being Democrat stuff well, whilst the city is burning around them. Yeah. Yeah. I, I learned something today. I, I want Anthony Davis on the show more often. <laughs> I like unshackled Anthony, not the nonpartisan five minute news guy. I like the guy with opinions and well, can spout out statistics well, and I was going to say those stati- being able to rattle statistics like that. That's a, that's a that's a that's a talent. That's a polymath. Skillset. He's a poly, he's a polymath. <laughs> well, I, I, you know, something that my favorite statistic out of all of those was the, the U.N. Development Programs Human Development Index. They said America was 17th in the world for quality of life. And I think that quality of life is actually a really good uh, metric with which to measure ourselves. Now, I moved from England because I knew that here in the US, I would have a better quality of life. But I chose to live in California, which is in itself a bubble and the sun shines all the time and people are kind of fake nice to each other. And I would rather someone was fake nice than really nasty. So, <laughs> you know, my, my, my perspective is one of quality of life. And I just cannot see how any of Trump's supporters, their quality of life is no better now than it was before he got elected. No. Yep. Karen, final word. Uh, <laughs> you love those. By the way, I, final, the final words. Yeah. Um, by the way, before I say a final word, uh, do, you, do you know a fun fact? <laughs> Here we've got Anthony talking about all these incredible statistics and looking really impressive, and I'm about to give a fun fact. Do you know what Roger Stone's tattoo is? Oh, God. No, uh, I, I've seen it in that documentary uh, about Roger Stone, and I can't remember who it is, but it's disgusting. He's got <laughs> he's got the face of Richard Nixon. That's right. It's oh, tattooed yeah. to his, his back. back, but it's yeah, his, his back. whole back. And it's, he's got like yeah. big muscles because he's a bodybuilder. So he's it's, got these yeah. weird elderly muscular shoulders with Nixon's <laughs> face on it. <laughs> Um, fine. My, just my, my final, my, my final thought is first of all, uh, Anthony, thank you so much for, uh, joining us today. It was really fun. Uh, I hope we can do this again. And I think your perspective is an important one that people need to hear more often. I mean, we do, we live in, in this bubble that's the United States and, you know, we think that we're the center of the world and Hollywood perpetuates that and the media perpetuates Mm -hmm. that and everything else. And, you know, just just having a perspective of of um, of countries that are much older than we are and who've been through it all and who've seen it all um, and who can sometimes be more civilized, but sometimes not. Um, we could learn a lot from uh, those perspectives. So the fact that you get up every day and and you you take the time to share those perspectives that are different and um, but really important and really, really much needed is just very appreciated. Uh, appreciated and I appreciate you very much and I, I really enjoyed uh, chatting with you today oh Thank you. so well, well so, I, I, so I well would put. just say finally I love America as much as I love the UK and I think to critique your own country or the country that you've you know relocated to is because you love it it's not because you hate it. It's not because you're trying to bring it down. And you moved you moved what a month after Donald Trump like took like you know yeah you moved. You don't even know the like really good America, like uh, Obama really America. Like that was a dream, you know. <laughs> you well, love it, it, it was, and- but it was a dream for you, maybe, and people like you. But for maybe a third, or maybe more than a yeah. third, it was the worst. You know, to have this black guy in the White House just was like they could not comprehend. And I, that's what I've had to learn because I too thought it was, you know, Obama was just like 
was Elysium. And actually, for, for many, many people, we really need to get under their skin. You know, why did they find that so offensive? And, and these are the lessons that I think we need to learn here. Yeah, we're going to have you back to do that. We've reached the end of the midweek edition of Legal AF with Michael Popak and Karen Friedman Agnifilo and our special guest and our brother in podcasting, Anthony Davis, 5-Minute News and The Weekend Show. You can catch it all on the Midas Media Network. Thanks again. Thanks again.